Today, however, we're going to continue on with the red letter study that we've been doing sort of off and on here for the first couple of months of the year, and then we took a break and did some other things, and we came back last Sunday. I want to continue on kind of in, in John, continue on in John, but continue on in terms of trying to understand where John is going. Remember, we talked about John's gospel being very different than the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke called the synoptics. They see with the same eye. They see things basically the same way, and they see things pretty much chronologically. They're going through a chronological story of Jesus' life. John is completely different. You know, John has sometimes been called to be structured around an inverted spiral. And uh, I don't know if that pictures anything for you, but the idea is he'll make a point, and then he'll take a little journey, and he'll amplify the point, and he'll come back to it. But he may come back to that point multiple times. And so he's trying to hone in on, circle in on, the question of Jesus' identity primarily. And when we took a look at John 1, we actually didn't read through it, but we just talked about that prologue in John 1, where John is basically telling us, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God in the beginning, and then the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So we've got this point that he's making about Jesus' identity. And then as he goes through the Gospel, he's coming back to that point over and over again, trying to get us to understand more and more with each cycle grinding that, deepening that sense of identity and who John is. And at the end of his gospel, he has two endings to the gospel, 20 and 21, but both times he says, this doesn't cover everything that Jesus did, but these are the things that we're recording here. These are the things that we're putting down here so that you may know, you may trust who Jesus is. We did go through John 2, which has to do with his first sign. There were seven signs that Jesus did, seven miracles. And the first was changing the water into wine. And that was also paired in John 2 with the cleansing of the temple. And so when we, things are put together in, in the text, we need to take a look at those because they're juxtaposed for a reason. And so Jesus turning water into wine, taking the water that was used for the purification rites, right, the law to, to satisfy the laws, is now being used for the joy and the celebration and the life of the community. Whereas in the temple, what was supposed to be the joy and the celebration and life of the community had devolved into what he called just a den of thieves. It was hollowed out. It was ritualized. It didn't carry the life of the people anymore. Again, talking about who Jesus is. In John 3, it's the great conversation that he has with Nicodemus, trying to get Nicodemus to understand that he can't just cling to this need for clarity and certainty, but he needs to be able to blow with the wind, not knowing where it's coming or where it's going, not being able to even see it, but to move under a different sort of steam. John 4, we did read through. That was dealing with the healing of the the king's servant's son. And then that was juxtaposed with his conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And so again, we're seeing these themes of Jesus' identity coming through to some people, but not coming through to others, and coming through to the outcasts, coming through to those who were not honored and were even hated by the Jews themselves. Well, the Jews, the ones most invested in the status quo, are the ones that are having the hardest time with understanding who Jesus really is. And so we're seeing these cycles 
these little excursions, these trips, these signs, these stories that John is weaving in and out, but always bolstering this idea of identity. Who is Jesus? So now what we want to do this morning is take a look at John 5, but also John 9. So here's another part of that inverted spiral, because in John 5 and John 9, we have a tale of two healings. There's two healings are going to happen. In, uh, in John 5, it's going to be healing of the infirm man at the pool of Bethesda. And then in John 9, we're going to see the healing of the man who was born blind. And we're going to see how these are both similar in many ways. Similarities between the healing in John 5 and John 9. First of all, they bring up the questions of identity. Again, who is Jesus really? The question even comes up, who is it that healed you? Who is Jesus? Questions of identity. Both happened during a feast. The feast is not named, but if we know it was one of the pilgrimage festivals, then Jerusalem was being inundated by Jews from all over the Roman Empire. They're all descending on Jerusalem to be part of this feast and to fulfill their obligations there. It's all happening in Jerusalem. It's all happening on a Sabbath, and that becomes a big deal. Because you're going to see Jesus deliberately breaking the Sabbath code. Not the written law, but the oral tradition that the rabbis had wrapped around each of the written laws as hedges of protection against breaking the actual written law. But they had raised it up to such an extent that it was now as important or more important than the written law. And sometimes these oral traditions were being used to subvert the written law. So Jesus is pretty insistent on tearing that down, showing that that's not the important thing. So these Sabbath controversies and both of these healings is going to be important. Both of the people who were healed, both of the men who were healed, had long-term disabilities. This wasn't anything that was short. In both of the healings, there is a discussion of sin and sickness and the relationship between the two. Both happen at pools, or at least pools of water function in these two stories. The first one at Bethesda and the second one at Siloam. And then there's a command from Jesus and a cure that happens because of the command. And finally, both of these healings involve two conversations within them, each one. The first one is between Jesus and the man who is being healed. And then the second one, and that one's all about healing and wellness, but the second one between the Jews is about the violation of the Sabbath and Jesus' identity as well. Who is it that's doing these things? So these two signs that we're talking about, two of the signs of, uh, of the seven that John gives us, are going to be teaching us about identity. Who is this Jesus that we're dealing with? But not only that, who is it that is asking this Jesus? It's about our identity as well. Not just Jesus' identity, but what about our identity? And even deeper than that, how is it that we see ourselves? How do we judge ourselves? How do we judge others in terms of their righteousness, in terms of their sin, in terms of where we stand and who we are? That criteria that we use to do that is front and center here in these two. And since John doesn't have a Sermon on the Mount that Matthew has, doesn't even have a sermon on the plane the way that Luke has. All of the, the information that was in those sermons where Jesus was specifically and methodically taking down and taking apart the oral tradition, redefining the law, 
is told in these stories, is told in these signs, is told in these sayings. And so we're going to see, if you're thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, and thinking about especially Matthew 5, where he's redefining the law, you're going to see some of those elements here in these stories as well. So let's dive right in at John 5, starting in verse 1. And uh, they are in your um, handouts, your inserts, if you want to take a look there. John will probably have them up on the screen. Already does. Look at, look at John go. All right, John. Okay, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now, notice there's a bracket here. That's going to be important in a second. Sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Close brackets. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, and here's the beautiful question, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is a Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Okay, there's a lot of stuff in there. We're going to unpack this a little bit, uh, little bit by bit. First of all, though, I don't know about you, but when I am reading a passage like this, Trying to set the scene really helps. And if we can set the scene from an archaeological point of view, if we can actually know as much as we can about what the setting was, I think it helps us to put this into a perspective. All right. So what, what is the location here, this, this pool of Bethesda? Is there such a place? Is there such a pool? You know, up until the 19th century, there was no inkling that this pool actually existed. There was no archaeological evidence, and many scholars were thinking, okay, it was just a story, a metaphor, perhaps, that that John was telling here. In the 19th century, some excavations showed pools in the area close to the Sheep Gate. But it wasn't until the 1950s that an excavation actually uncovered the ruins of something that looked and, and was able to be described in the same way that John describes this pool here. And as they excavated it and as they reconstructed it, the story goes like this, that back in the 8th century BCE, okay, that's the 700s BC, BCE, um, there was a small valley. The valley was was called Bet Sata, 
Bet Sata. And it was just a short valley that ran along the north um, end of Jerusalem, but it was a natural runoff for rainfall. The temple needed a ton of water to operate. I mean, any city does, right? But the temple needed a lot of water because they were constantly going through all the purification rites, washing hands, washing feet. Try to imagine what it would be like if they were sacrificing animals all day long. The amount of blood, the smell, the awful, everything. Can you imagine what that was like? And the amount of water that it would need to keep that place somewhat clean. Water was a staple. And so they needed more water for the city and especially for the temple. So what they did was they dammed up. They first dug out a reservoir and then dammed up the end, the downslip end of the valley uh, of Betzata, and then created a reservoir there. Well, then you fast forward to the second century BCE, so another 500 years or so. And they enclose all of that, and they dig a second reservoir just to the downslope side of that. And that dam also had a sluice effect so that you, they could raise and lower it and determine how much water was going to be um, you know, in each of the two reservoirs. And then a rock-cut aqueduct went from the reservoirs into the temple complex and, and gave them basically running water, Right. Okay, so this is what we think is going on here. In that second century, they enclosed it by putting porticos all around, colonnades. Take a look at the picture that is down here. I, I meant to have it up for the screen, and I forgot to bring the file. But if you can take a look there, that is sort of giving you what this looks like. If you're looking at that, you can see the two squares that are enclosed with porticos, with colonnades. Um, John talks about five porticos. So you have the four sides on the outside, and then you have the fifth one that bisects the two, that is actually the dam or the sluice. And what you're looking at, that wall in the foreground is actually the wall of the city. So these pools stood inside the city, but outside that wall to the left there is the north wall of the temple mount itself, the temple complex. And then up at the top, you see those turrets there. That was the fortress of Antonia that was attached to the Temple Mount. That was where the Roman garrison was housed. And so you can kind of see that this actually has a place in history, something that we can take a look at. And these reservoirs were big. We're not talking about some little pool here. The estimates are that they were about 200 feet by 300 feet long. Imagine taking four Olympic-sized swimming pools and putting them side to side and, and arranging them in a rectangle. And you're starting to get a sense of the size of these things. And not only that, they were deep. They're about 40 feet plus deep because they were reservoirs. So how in the world do you deal with that? Well, there were stairs that led down in each of the corners into the water. And not only that, there were natural caves and grottos that were then fed. They cut uh, aqueducts into them, so these grottos and caves were fed with water where people could bathe and other things were going on. So where was the actual healing site? Was it in one of the main reservoirs? Is it wasn't one of the grottos? We don't know. But we know that throughout these colonnades, these breezeways with these rows of columns around the water, all these infirm people were laying and waiting for this moment when something happened. Now, the name Bethesda, that's an anglicized version of it. The actual name would have been Bet, the first part, which means house, and then Chesta, which, which is Chesed, basically coming from, which means mercy, grace, or loving kindness. So literally, Bethesda, or Bet Ezda, would mean house of mercy or house of grace. 
There's another school of thought that it comes from a shed, which means an outpouring or a waterfall. So it's either the house of outpouring or it's the house of mercy and grace. But you can see why they named it that, because of the people that were gathered there that needed this mercy and needed this grace. Now what about the stirring of the waters that they talk about? I told you to take to notice that there are brackets around that section, which is John um, 5, 3b, the second half of verse 3 into verse 4. The reason there are brackets about this, and whenever you see that in one of your English translations, it means that they're not sure if this verse was original with the first manuscript. When we take a look at the most important manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts, the ones that scholars feel are the most reliable, this section doesn't occur. And so they're not sure. Yet it's referred to in verse 7, right, that the angels stirred up the waters. And so it fits, but we just don't know about this one. But what is this all about? You know, the waters stir up and the first one in gets healed and nobody else does. I mean, obviously it's a superstitious folk belief, but it's here in the Bible. What are we supposed to make of that? Once again, prescriptive and descriptive, right? It's not necessarily implying that this was true, but it is describing what the people actually believed. They believed this. And what was this stirring of the waters? Did it really occur? Well, nobody knows. But this is a, a runoff-fed reservoir system. And the dam had sluices that could be opened and closed and sometimes overflowed. So there were times when there was water running into the reservoir into these grottos. That could be the times of the stirring of the waters that people were waiting for. But I think more interesting than that is the relation to, or the connection to living water that Jesus talks about with the Samaritan woman. When he tells her, hey, you know what? If you come to me, I can give you living water. Well, living water is a Hebrew idiom that means water that is moving. Anything that's moving in a spring or moving in a river, moving in a waterfall, that was understood as living water. Now, if you're a good camper, you know the only water you want to drink in the wild is going to be water that's moving. You don't want to drink, drink stagnant water, static water, because that's the water that's going to have all the bugs in it. It's living water that is clean, that's fresh, that... that is, is, is nutritious to us. It's living water that carries the Spirit of God. God's Spirit is always seen as moving. We talked about this. So the people understood that to get into the water when it was moving had healing properties. They could move with the water. And so all of this is part of and background to this story. But here's Jesus. Sees the man somehow knows, either supernaturally or just has recognized him from before, maybe heard stories about him, but he knows that he's been there forever. The text says 38 years, which is amazing if you think about it. How does an infirm person live for 40 years nearly in a situation like this? But he knows he's been there for a long time, and his question is, do you wish to get well? Now that sounds like almost an insult to us, doesn't it? Like, uh, you know, a no-brainer, <laughs> stating the obvious here. But the words that Jesus used are very telling. Do you wish, do wish you, in the, in the Aramaic configuration. The word there is tzave, which is a word that is derived from sebiana. We've talked about sebiana in here many times. Sebiana is the word that we translate as will, but what it really means is the desire, the delight, the pleasure, 
or the deepest purpose of a person or of God. So God's will is really God's desire and delight and deepest purpose. Jesus is saying, is it your deepest purpose? Is it your desire? Is it your delight? Is it your pleasure to be well? Now the word for well, at the lem in Aramaic, it means well in the way that we think of it, free from disease, right, free from illness, but it means much more than that. It means to be whole. It means to be healthy. It means to be cured. The Greek equivalent of that word, hugies, means sound and whole and well in the same sense. And in Titus, Paul uses that same word when he talks about sound doctrine. So this soundness, this wholeness, this completeness is not only about a physical wholeness, but also can be a mental wholeness as well. It's about thought, and it's about behavior, and it's about just our physical situation. So there's a completeness to this, a wholeness to this, sound in mind and thought and body. We would probably say fully integrated. And so Jesus' question here is all about this. Is it your deepest purpose to be completely whole, to be completely well and integrated? I want to read just a little piece if we can start to understand what the mental idea was, what the thought process of these first followers of Jesus about wellness, maybe we can understand more where Jesus is driving. In non-Western medicine, the main problem with sickness is the experience of the sick person being dislodged from his or her social moorings and social standing. Okay, you get that? So the sickness dislodges you, takes you out of your normal social standing takes you out from the moorings that you have, the roots that you have in your community. Social interaction with family members, friends, neighbors, and village mates comes to a halt. To be healed is to be restored to one's social network. In contemporary Western medicine, we view disease as a malfunction of some organism that can be remedied, assuming cause and cure are known by proper biomedical treatment We focus on restoring a sick person's ability to function, to do. Yet often overlooked is the fact that health and sickness are always culturally defined and that in many societies the ability to function is not the heart of the matter. In the ancient Mediterranean world, one's state of being was more important than one's ability to act or function. Your state of being was more important than your ability to act or function. Thus, the healers of that world focused on restoring a person to a valued state of being rather than just the ability to function. Now, obviously, the two are related. Your ability to function, you know, your body to do what your body is supposed to do, your mind to do what your mind was supposed to do, is also connected to your place in society but not just about your ability to function as an organism, but how you function within the group. So your wellness isn't about you alone as an individual, just being well or not, functioning or not, the way your body was designed or your mind was designed, but also how you function within the group, your ability to function within the group. This is so important for us to understand. Anthropologists, therefore, distinguish between disease a biomedical malfunction afflicting an organism, and an illness, 
a disvalued state of being in which a person's social networks have been disrupted and social significance is lost. Now, in the Jewish system, you didn't even have to be sick to end up in this disvalued state. Women, when they were having their menstrual cycle, were considered unclean. Now, how fair is that, right? But you couldn't do the normal things that you did. A woman couldn't do the normal things that, that she would normally do in terms of interaction with her family, with her friends, within society, until that time had passed. There were many things that would make you unclean. If you touched a corpse, you were considered unclean. And everything had to stop until you went to the temple, you went to the priest, you went through the purification rites, and they declared you clean. Obviously, if you did have a disease, that would be something as well. Until you were declared clean, you couldn't function within the society. Remember when the paralytic is... uh, lowered down through the roof in the house where Jesus is because they can't even get in the front door because it's so crowded? What is the first thing that Jesus says to him? They are lowering him down because he can't walk and hasn't walked for some time. But what's the first thing that Jesus says to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that seems a little bit out of the blue, but understand this. Between being forgiven and being healed is a very fine line. In fact, the two terms are interchangeable. To be forgiven is to be restored to the state you were before whatever happened happened to you, before whatever you did changed the calculus. To be healed is basically the same thing. But what Jesus is doing is looking at the fact that this man's paralysis was keeping him out of the ability to function with the rest of the community. All that is forgiven is what he's saying. These are equivalent terms. So when we look at this, we need to look at this in a very different way. We've talked about how shalom, which we would translate as peace, means much more than just the absence of conflict to these ancients. It is the greatest possible amount of health and wellness and wholeness and community and connection. All of those things together. Anything less than that was considered to miss the mark. The idea of sin as missing the mark, you probably heard that before, is missing the mark of that wholeness, missing the mark of that perfect connection. And this is where we're driving with this as well. Jesus is talking about shalom and kingdom being the full expression of ourselves, not only as individuals, but individuals also within the group. So Jesus' question to this man, this paralytic, is all-encompassing. Is it your deepest desire, is it your deepest purpose in life to live with shalom, to live in kingdom, to live with this fullness that we're talking about? That's what he's really asking him. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for what it's going to take for this to happen in your life? Now in verse 14, he tells him, you become well, Don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens. Oh, now what is he talking about? What's this about? What worse can happen? More disease? More infirmity? Or is he talking about a final judgment? What is he talking about here? Jesus deliberately breaks the Sabbath with this man. If he just cured him at a word, that really wasn't breaking the Sabbath. Not only was it not 
doing any work on the Sabbath, the written command, but it also wasn't breaking any of the dozens of oral traditions that the rabbis, the Pharisees, wrapped around that written command. But as soon as he told him to pick up his pallet and walk, now he's breaking the Sabbath. You couldn't carry anything more than a few feet on the Sabbath. That was one of the Pharisees' commands, the oral commands. He deliberately told them to do something that would break the Sabbath, not just cure him. Now, he didn't have to do that. In fact, he could have just waited till sundown, and then the Sabbath would have been over. Just had a conversation with him until then, and he wouldn't have had to break the Sabbath. What is Jesus doing here? Why is he doing this? I believe it's that he's trying to get across a point here between the merely legal and the relational. Just as he does in Matthew 5, he's trying to get everyone to understand your standing with God, your view of yourself, is not just because you keep the law. It's because there is real relationship. There is connection here. There is love here. What was this man's sin? I mean, there was... It's implied by Jesus saying, don't sin anymore, right? So obviously Jesus sees sin in the man. What did he see as the sin? What is it we're talking about here? Let's take a look at John 9, the second healing, and see if we can start putting this all together. So John 9, right at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. Okay, this is just assumed, right? Because this was their culture. This is what they understood. If someone was born blind, if any bad thing happened, it was a reaction to something that they did. In other words, every malady was earned, okay? That's their culture. Rabbi, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? So he could even be blamed for his parents' sin, not even his own. Jeez. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to the man's eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated as sent. So when he went away and washed and came back seeing, he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then are your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought, him, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now once again, Jesus, if he just said, Eyes be opened, no problem, right? But as soon as he put dirt in his hand and spat there and mixed it into clay, now he was violating the Pharisees' prohibition against kneading, kneading dough or anything on the Sabbath. He specifically is putting mud in the eye of the Pharisees, if you think of it that way. So here he is again, 
specifically and deliberately violating the Sabbath. Who sinned, they asked, that he would be in this position? Nobody sinned. His debility has another purpose. Somehow it's going to give glory to God. But it's up to the man to realize that purpose, right? He's got the blindness. What is he going to make of that? What is he going to do with that? But what Jesus is telling us is really important. There is no punitive linkage between sin, understood as unlawfulness, and sickness and disease as we experience it. I want to go a little bit further. I only had this much space, but John, if you can put up the continuation of this story. So starting right at verse 15, and you can guys can follow along. Then the Pharisees were also asking, this is the man who was born blind again, how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the man, the blind man again, what do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? The parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself dropping down a little bit. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. He then answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why, do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you were teaching us, and so they put him out. Convenient. Just get rid of the questioner, right? You were born entirely in your sins. Why? Because he was born blind. Ergo, therefore, he was born entirely in sin. But notice what's going on here. All of these details are pointing to several things that we need to know about this man born blind. First of all, he has his parents. He has his family. He's in good and solid connection with them. They love him. He loves them. They back each other up. He's eloquent. He's intelligent. He's courageous. He enters into, or is drug into, a debate here with the finest legal minds that 
Israel has to offer. And he not only holds his own, he takes him to school, doesn't he? This guy's got a lot going on. Jesus mentions no sin in him. He doesn't tell him, go and sin no more, the way he does to the the man who was uh, in, in the infirm man at Bethesda, the way he does to the woman who was caught in adultery. He doesn't say, son, your sins are forgiven, the way he does to the paralytic. He doesn't see any sin in him. He simply was born blind. So why is there no sin? How do we understand that? Let's contrast him with the man at the pool and see if we can figure this out. An infirmity in a person didn't necessarily make you an outcast. Leprosy would because it was contagious and you had to stay outside the city gates. But we don't know this man's infirmity at the pool. But it still allowed him social interaction. He could still be inside the city gates. He could still be around other people inside the walls. Yet this man had no family or friends to help him into the pool when the waters were stirred up. Why is he alone? Why is he alone for 38 years? Or why is the last 38 years all conspired to this moment when he is absolutely alone? There's some clues here. The first one, he's laying by the pool for 38 years. I suppose begging, is that how he is making his living? You know, at the very least, he's a little bit unimaginative. <laughs> you know, can't find a way into the water after 38 years of the waters being stirred up and he still can't figure out how to get in there first. He can't even work with someone to help him get into the waters first, right? When Jesus asks him, do you wish to be well? He can't even say yes. That would be the no-brainer of all time, right? Well, yes, I do. Of course I do. But he can't say that. He complains about others getting in first before him and that no one helps him. He is living in a victim mentality. He's living without the possibility of change because it's always somebody else's fault. The blame is there. He doesn't even ask Jesus' name when he heals him. He doesn't know who it is that healed him. Is he just living a completely oblivious life? Is he just not thinking things through? And then afterwards, and when he realizes he doesn't know Jesus' name, when they ask him, who is it that's, that healed you, he doesn't even go looking for Jesus to try to find him to thank him, to follow him, to ask him a follow-up question even. Jesus has to find him in the temple and have the conversation. Sounds a little ungrateful, right? He doesn't have any social skills, apparently. He's greatly self-focused. He's disconnected. And maybe we're inferring a little too much a little bit of laziness there as well. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit harsh. But there's something going on here that is keeping this man in this place. By contrast, let's take a look at the man born blind. When Jesus speaks to him, he immediately obeys. He says yes with his actions. He doesn't need to be coaxed. And it's a weird command, isn't it? First of all, let me put this mud spit on your eyes. <laughs> And then go wash it off in this pool and, uh, and see what happens. You don't even know what's going to happen. He doesn't say he's going to. Just, just go wash, all right? And uh, again, Jesus didn't have to break the Sabbath this way, but he's doing this to make a point about how we view ourselves and how we view others. The man born blind doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't place any blame. 
He's connected to his family. He's connected to his mother and his father. He's intelligence. He's courageous in the debate. He holds his own. He's connected. He's whole. Jesus sees no sin in him. These are two very different people, even though they were both debilitated in a way that kept them out of just the daily community life. Jesus says to the man at the pool, sin no more so that nothing worse happens. What's the worst thing that can happen? Obviously, Jesus is not talking about disease here. And he's not talking about punishment here. He makes that clear with the man born blind. You know, These things that happen to people aren't punitive. They aren't a result of things that have been done either by them or their parents or other family members. Let's take a look at one other comment here. If we assume that Jesus' reference to something worse happening to the man is a reference to his illness, the puzzle is indeed present. Jesus seems to be threatening another disease if the man should sin again. But if we recognize that in Mediterranean societies, sin is a breach of interpersonal relations, there ceases to be a problem. For if sin is whatever destroys one's relationship with the group, And if we note that this man was devoid of friends to put him in the pool, Jesus' comment makes perfect sense. As a friendless outcast, the man was indeed a sinner, an outsider unattached to a group. He may have been sick, but he was also ill, right? The difference between disease and illness. Given his age and the short life expectancies in antiquity, should the man repeat whatever disrupted his relationships with the group, he would indeed risk the worst of all fates, having no one to bury and remember him. So we need to stop thinking legally about this and start thinking relationally. The worst thing that could happen to this man or to any of us is having no family, no friends, no one to bury us, that we remain separated. This is what Jesus is talking about. Sin is not about unlawful behavior. We always want to equate those two. But Jesus is breaking that down. Sin is not unlawful behavior. Sin is being disconnected, being separated. And doing what separates right? Anything that we do that disconnects, that breaks up relationship is sinful. It's less than shalom. It's less than kingdom, the perfect connection, the understanding of our oneness. To be healed is to be reconnected, literally to be forgiven, to be restored to the place we held before the break happened. And those two terms are interchangeable. To be healed is to be forgiven. To be forgiven is to be set free. To be set free is to be healed. All these terms are the same. To be delivered, to be saved. These are all interchangeable in the Hebraic mind. To sin no more is to live relationally, not lawfully, though they're mostly the same. If we're living relationally, we're mostly living lawfully, but sometimes the two conflict, and we need to know the difference. Deliberate Sabbath violations is Jesus ramming this point home. 
you cannot obey your way into kingdom. It can't happen. Just to follow rules, just to follow laws, just to be obedient does not expand us out into that deepest purpose, that sembiana, that desire and that delight that there is nothing else that we would do even if we did have the choice, and we do. We would always choose connection, relationship. When that becomes as important to us as it is to God, we are one with the Father. And all we do is what the Father does through us, what Jesus said about himself, right? The blind man was only healed physically. He was not living in sin. The infirm man was given a chance at new relationship. Will he take it? We don't know. We're not told. We can hope he would. But here's the bigger point. At every single moment in our lives, Jesus is standing in front of us. Try to imagine that. Face to face, eye to eye, and asking us, do you wish to be well? Is it your deepest desire to be completely whole and connected and one with everything that is? What's our answer? That's the question that we need to ask ourselves. To take these two healings and take them out of antiquity and bring them into the moments of our lives and say the same thing is happening to us right now. Are we infirm? Are we paralyzed by our fears? Are we blind and can't see what's right in front of our face? Do we wish to be well? Is that desire enough that we will do whatever it takes to move into that space that Jesus has for us? Hopefully the fear and the disconnection is not too great that we will make an excuse. But like the blind man, we will simply say yes with our hands, with our feet, with everything that's in us and be willing to let go and relinquish the things that need to be relinquished so that we can see with new eyes and walk with new feet. Let's pray. Father, it's just good to be here today. It's good to be together. It's good to play music and sing songs and eat food and tell stories. All the things that we do when we're together. Thank you for making this your space, your day. Thank you for gathering us in your name. And with this gathering and with everything that we do every moment, we give you permission, Father, to keep directing us, to show us things that are uncomfortable, show us things that we're going to resist so that we can practice more and more breaking through those limitations and those barriers to deeper understanding of our relationship with you and with each other. Thank you for this process, Lord. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.